Hey, everybody. Thanks for coming back to join us. We're the Mench Warmers, your bi-weekly look at the world of Jews and sports. Happy uh, Purim, everybody. Happy Purim. As we're, as we're uh, recording this, I believe it's day two of three of a, of a weird three-day Purim, if you live in the right place. I think Purim is as long as you make it. Purim <laughs> is definitely a state of mind in my house. Well, we talked about this last year that like Purim is the is the candidate for the breakout Jewish holiday. And I think this year I felt like there's a lot more discussion online in the, you know, Jewish and like sort of the borderline Jewish non-Jewish spaces about Purim and Purim related things. Like five years ago, no Gentile would know what a Hamantashen is, but now maybe they would have heard of it or have had one. Yeah, well, I put this on on Twitter the other day for those who are following us on social media, and and it seemed to get a pretty good response that there's been a lot of humantushin hate around the internet this year, and I, a big creator of and eater of humantushin, um, I made about two dozen, and my wife, uh, she is eight and a half months pregnant, but she ate, I think, all of them wow. between then and now. Um, I think your take was are delicious. I think your take was right. All humantushin are good. I mean. They're all fine. They're they're I think a, a a high floor, low ceiling cookie. You know, the most the best hamantaschen I've never had I've ever had was not transcendent. But even the worst one is like perfectly fine with a cup of tea and uh, to to close out it's a meal. Shortbread and jam, right? If you were to yeah. have everything that made a hamantaschen, even a bad hamantaschen, but it was like you know two dry pieces of shortbread with a little marmalade in the middle of it because we sure. all know the marmalade hamantaschen are the worst ones then mm-hmm. let's let's imagine that as a cookie you could be having it in any coffee shop anywhere in the UK as if it was like a standard thing yeah i think again at worst it's still a decent cookie shortbread and jam or some sweet filling what's your what's your favorite uh I'm a, a raspberry jam guy. I usually make my own raspberry jam. This year, I got lazy. Uh, mm-hmm. One year, our producer Michael and I made a poppy seed filling uh, by itself, and I think whoever is living in that apartment now is still cleaning it off the stove. That sounds that sounds like uh, a recipe for disaster. I don't know how they get the poppy seed. Poppy seed is my favorite. I don't know how they get the poppy seed so delicious, you know. But I think uh, it's just sugar and heat. I think it's just sugar and heat. Yeah. <laughs> how do they get the poppy? Into the seeds. the poppy seed is just a is just a vessel for what is essentially caramel. <laughs> yes, I think I think it's more it's more or less poppy seed flavored caramel. And I was actually talking this with some non Jewish friends. Why why do we eat the hat? Like I know Haman's bad. I missed the part where we decided that eating his hat is the right move. Got to eat something. I know the poppy <laughs> seeds like at least in retrospect the the analogy is that they represent the fleas in in Haman's pockets. And uh, I, that's very silly. You know, why would you eat the fleas? It's all just, you know, rhetorical. Uh, I think I think the Hamantaschen, some people say I think that they're supposed to represent his ears. But I think the tri-corner hat is, is like a feature of Haman, right? Yeah, I think it's both. The, the, yeah. the, that hat. Who, how many people have famously worn the tricorn? Maybe it's a Paul Revere thing after the American Revolution. We decided that it was hat related. Maybe. But. It's also Anyways. interesting. I learned about Purim, which I think is a good tie-in to what our podcast is about. It's not actually a religious Jewish holiday, but a cultural Jewish holiday. Not unlike the start of spring training or when Max Homa wins a PGA Tour event. Good segue to, uh, I think, our first sports topic of the pod. Uh, a little update for the PGA season that's early in its uh, PGA early in Tour. Its year. It should so, be called the P. Juze Tour. That's right. So for the first time ever, I looked this up. I did some deep, deep research on, on the Wikipedia. Uh, two Jews won PGA Tour events in back-to-back weeks. 
Did um, Corey Pavin never win two two events in a row? No, I mean most golfers haven't. Even pretty good golfers haven't won two events in a row, right? Like it's, it's rare. Pretty, you know, it's rare. Like and and often you take a week off if you win. Like if you're someone who's really good. Um, but yeah, so Daniel Berger won the uh, the AT and T Pebble Beach Pro Am at uh, Pebble Beach, obviously. And then he took the next week off, allowing some room for Max Homa, who won the. Uh, uh, Sorry, uh, I'm the Hyundai uh, Genesis Open. The Hyundai Genesis Open, yes, at uh, Ventura. No, Riviera. sorry, what's it called? Riviera, uh, uh, home blanket. course of of Lawrence David. Right, and Max Homa, uh, a Los Angeles kid. You know, I think he he spoke afterwards about how emotional it was to get the get the trophy from Tiger Woods. It's Tiger's tournament. Um, and Tiger, obviously, a few days later, very tragically suffered a suffered a significant injury. But uh, you know, Max Homa was very emotional and uh, very effusive about it. So. Great to see both those guys win. Um, we spoke about this on our, our last pod was was taped during the uh, the AT and T Pebble Beach during Daniel program. Berger's magical good vibe run to the top. Yeah, and we said you know he's the guy to watch. I mean he's going to be in the top ten soon if he isn't already uh, or after this weekend. He's going to be a guy to watch at all the majors this year, including he's the Ryder be a Cup, big contender. And I think the same thing can be said of Homa. Homa Max Homa is having a great season so far. Uh, he had a top ten finish at Pebble Beach. You know, he's had a few other top 20 finishes this year and he won a tournament, you know, at his home course. And I think the momentum is with him going into the Masters, which are, you know, just six weeks away now, right? About six weeks. The uh, My child is actually due on Masters Sunday. So wow. should uh, Max Homer or Daniel Berger be in the finals? Um, I have to ask our producer, are we allowed to write off my hospital stay? That would be nice. Uh, you know you know how you get to write off your hospital stay? This is Canada. You don't have to pay for it. <laughs> no, the we're most going expensive to the thing upgrade about- to the individual oh, going- room. Well, do you- well, if you both get semi-private coverage, then you can combine that to one private coverage. We do. Actually, my, my insurance will pay for all of it, but that's yeah. not important. The most expensive thing about giving, giving birth in Toronto was uh, paying for parking at Mount Sinai Hospital. And I, if I recall, you were quite pissed off. Well, it was it. like forty bucks. That's a lot of. That's a lot for parking. I mean, sure, everything else was free, but like you know, still, it's a it's a principle of the matter. And you can't. It's not like you can park six blocks away in some cheap spot that you know about when your wife is you know in labor and going you know going but through uh, contractions. Like eight hours long. I. But it's true. You're right. That's like You're a second. Right. You know what? It was the first baby. Maybe the second baby. It's like. No, honey, look, I know a spot on Baldwin. Like, it's a bit of a schlep, but we're going to save 20 bucks here. <laughs> this guy will let me park overnight. Like, you, you'll be okay, right? You're not going to give birth for another five minutes? All right, you know. I'm, I'm just going to pop into the ramen place. <laughs> like, well, go ahead. Go ahead. I'll, I'll catch up with some food. Yeah. Uh, I, I, but if I think we're, you know, James, if, if the baby is coming and Max Homa is making his way through Eamon Corner, Homa and Berger in the final group together on hole 12 coming in and, and my wife is in labor. I'm going to have to have you solo that coverage. Do you know what you should name your baby if it's born on Master Sunday? Augusta. Ooh. That's an intense name. Ooh. That's like born that for greatness. Intense. Yeah. Has, has any Jewish person been named after a place <laughs> that has explicitly banned Jews before? Uh, that's a good question. I'm sure uh, there must be some. It must be someone. All of, all of the Leibowitz children running around Toronto are named Granite Club Stein. <laughs> And uh, uh, Granite Club Cohen. Some pretty inside baseball on uh, on formerly restricted uh, Toronto clubs. <laughs> Rose, Rosedale uh, Gerberwitz or something like that. Right, exactly. I, I think if I named the kid Augusta Cohen, uh, Hootie Johnson 
will uh, turn over in his grave. I think, you know, Hootie Johnson gets a bad rap because he was the chairman during that time when they were dealing with whether or not to include women members at Augusta. But I think he was actually like a really good guy. Like, I, I think he was like very involved with charities and like, like a concerned environmentalist or something like that. Um, you know, in terms of, and, and just speaking of, of people being named after places Jews aren't welcome, our, our producer Michael has uh, ha, has reminded us of the the great composer Irving Berlin. <laughs> that's a, that's a pretty good one. That is ab- absolutely true, uh, Irving Berlin. I I'm sure there is like a, a Racklaw Schulowitz who was a a violin player somewhere. So moving on from uh, our little golf update, there's a little we have an update from the Australian Open, and I got to say Mia Kalpa on this one, um, or whatever the Jewish Slicha, I guess. Uh, Mia yeah. Kalpa, I, I hardly know a Kalpa. Uh, before the during our last pod, Slicha. Ooh, could we do we start Slicha Corner? Slicha Corner is good, actually. Uh, <laughs> we'll have to keep that in mind uh, for our errata. So, first Slicha Corner. At our last pod, we talked about um, two Jewish tennis players who we knew about at the Australian Open. And guys, we've talked about a lot in the past Denis Shapovalov and Diego Schwartzman, uh, who were who were primed for a face off in the in the fourth the third round in their bracket, uh, neither of whom made it there because they both lost in the third round. Um, but who did Diego Schwartzman lose to? A qualifier and heretofore unknown player named Aslan Karatsev, who it turns out is Jewish. Nobody knew about this guy. He is Iranian. He is Jewish. He is from the Caucasus. He is Russian. He's he's a real mosaic of what it takes to be a Jewish athlete in 2021. Yeah. So this guy came out of nowhere. Um, Aslan uh, Karatsev was, uh, I think, born in born in Russia or Setia and moved to Israel, but then moved back to Russia and is a Russian. You know, plays under the the Russian flag, and he had the best uh, Grand Slam uh, record for anyone who was qualifying in, the, in their first Grand Slam. So of anyone who made their rookie That's debut, remarkable. A, a rookie debut. In a Grand Slam, he made it all the way to the semifinals. Uh, he ended up losing to uh, Djokovic, which you know happens when you when you face Djokovic. Um, mm-hmm. But he made it all the way to the semifinals. He took down Schwartzman, as we said, who is a top ten player. He took down uh, Montrealer Felix Auger Aliassim, uh, who's a top twenty player. Uh, Dimitrov, his country, uh, Romanian, I think, who's also a top yep. twenty player. He had an amazing run, and this is a guy. He's twenty seven years old or twenty eight years old. Um, he's like a virtual nobody, you know, his highest, his highest, uh, ranking prior to the, the Australian open was like in the two hundreds. And I think he was, his ranking going into the Australian was like 400 or something like that. And he's Jewish. So good to know. It's, it's remarkable. He's fluent in Hebrew. Yeah. Um, as well as Russian and English, um, his Wikipedia page, which obviously we read lists his Hebrew name. <laughs> um, and it's it's very interesting uh, to see, you know, it's rare a Jewish athlete, you know, slips our grasp. But when they do, it's because they appear out of nowhere, like this guy. Well, that was some some of the some of the reporting on it afterwards seemed to be a little bit of head scratching from the uh, Australia uh, sorry from an Israeli tennis watcher saying like, how do we miss this guy? Like, how do we not develop him? How how did he? Uh, how you know how is he allowed to sort of move back to Russia and and train there? Because you know, there's some. National They'd like esteem. him to play as it as an Israeli, exactly as the same way they w- they wanted Shapovalov to play as an, an Israeli. Sure, but I'm saying you play in the place where you trained and the, with the people you trained with and all that. So yeah, um, it's just sort of sad that he you know he could have been the first great Israeli tennis player or first one in a long time, and uh, you know he is still Israeli. I mean Shapovalov's Israeli as well in terms of his nationality, but he doesn't play under that flag. So 
Uh, it's true. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens to this guy. I mean, it's sort of like a Cinderella story. Who the hell knows if he? Um, I'm not sure exactly how tennis qualifying works. If he gets a free pass to the other ma- other Grand Slams this year, I well, what I think now that he's in the top 64 in the world, okay, is he? he? Gets, yeah. yeah, he gets to join the higher rank of the tour. Like he no longer has to qualify for so many tournaments, right. and you get so many he points. Has the points, right? You get so many points from from being in the semifinals of a Grand Slam that you make it that far. Because, so like in golf, for example, like I know, like if you win a PGA tournament, usually you get to come to all the majors for the next year, kind of thing. Yeah, you, so, you, it gives you enough enough money. I think it actually is on the PGA Tour. It's it's organized by prize money one, okay. um, but in in. Tennis is organized, you know, every tournament is points. And if you miss the tournament, you lose the points in the following year, okay. which is how Tiger Woods is able to keep his ranking, even though he only plays 10 or so tournaments a year, because he still wins enough total money to keep himself up high. Right, right. Um, well, uh, I think at our next pod, we'll probably do a little bit of a, a preview on the upcoming baseball season, but uh, maybe we should check in a little bit on basketball and hockey. You know, those seasons are not quite halfway, but but getting there, uh, getting to the sort of turn of the of the year. How are uh, any any Jewish hockey players we should we should be thinking about or talking about who are having a good season? Absolutely, uh, I'm sort of in the spotlight. Uh, last year was first overall pick Jack Hughes uh, with his uh, very sort of uh, French Dreyfus affair name, as Jamie pointed out last year. Jamie, can we get can we get one from you here? Jack Hughes, exactly from the Jack Hughes. But uh, his brother, Quinn, is the lead defenseman on the very, very poorly performing uh, Vancouver Canucks, uh, which leads him sort of um, uh, exposed to a lot of uh, uh, high goal scoring. He, uh, you know, at the time of recording, he was leading the league in goals scored against him oh, when he was good. on the... No, it was not good. Is that a that's, Corsi? Is that Corsi? How's his Corsi? Uh, I think his Corsi is probably relatively bad. Oh, that's too bad. Um how, what about and, you know, uh, hometown hero uh, Zach Hyman? Left in the NHL, or left now currently NHL, uh, hometown hero Zach Hyman is currently playing excellently for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Um, he is he is playing, uh, having a very, very good season. The Leafs are the single best team in the NHL, which is exciting to all of us who are in Toronto. Um, as well, Pretty ironic it's happening in a year when no one can watch the games in person, eh? I'm a little upset about that. I, I'm not so worried about that. I'm worried if the... Leafs happen to win the Stanley Cup. Oh, it's going to be a public public health disaster. Yeah, that's going to be a real public health disaster. Absolutely. Um, Joshua Hosang is playing in Sweden. Um, He was cut again from the New York Islanders and let go. Um, Friend of the podcast and former guest, uh, Nate Thompson, is off to a good start, sort of bringing a veteran presence to uh, the Winnipeg Jets. Wow. So uh, the Canadian Jewish news from the, the Winnipeg with an- another Canadian city with a very large Jewish community. Um, you know, knowing how much he loves Chesky's Bakery in Montreal, we are only <laughs> hoping he could find right. an equally good uh, Jewish bakery. If you, uh, for our listeners, we recommend you tweet at us and, Nate, and at Nate Thompson telling him what Jewish bakery in Montreal to go to. You mean Winnipeg? Um, in Winnipeg, I apologize, yeah. uh, in Winnipeg to go to so we can get into the Winnipeg Jewish community. Um, but if we are focused on Zach Hyman, the Maple Leaf, he is off to a great start. Not always the highest point scorer, but he he brings an element of grit, of toughness, of sort of a Maca- Maccabean style of play. I like it. I like it. Uh, you know, they think he would only, they thought he would only last one shift in the NHL, but he lasted eight. That's good. And that's happened every game ever since. Not not much to update in terms of basketball. I know we talked about Denny Avdia, uh, really the only Jewish 
known Jewish basketball player in the NBA at the moment. Uh, you know, he's still having a not great rookie season, but a lot to build on. Six rebounds a game, five, sorry, five rebounds a game, six points a game. A lot, lot to build on there for a pretty moribund uh, Washington Wizards team. Um, moving on from there, Gabe, we're uh, lucky to be joined this episode by uh, Eric Nussbaum, who uh, recently wrote a book called Stealing Home. That's correct. Eric is a Angelino, was a lifelong Angelino. Uh, that is the term for someone who is from Los Angeles. I did not make it up, I promise. Uh, he is a lifelong Angelino who has recently left the city. However, before he did, uh, he was working on a book telling the story of the process that went into building Dodger Stadium. The book is called Stealing Home uh, because it sort of focuses on the stories of the uh People who lived in the land of Chavez Ravine before it was made into Dodger Stadium, the promise of the public housing complex that was to be developed there before the stadium, and sort of the process that led into the sale of the land and the building of the stadium. Uh, The book is about to come out in paperback uh, later this month and will be available anywhere you buy your books. And it was very nice uh, that Eric could join us for this conversation. Uh, Eric has had a long career writing in a lot of uh, notable sports publications um, from uh, the classical where he was an editor to uh, formerly of Deadspin and now of Defector.com. He is currently freelancing for there too, as well as writing uh, uh, plenty of very uh, interesting stories all over the internet for us to find. Um, he also currently has a Substack newsletter uh, about sports, which we will link to in the show notes uh, and online. Great. Let's go to our interview with Eric Nussbaum. So welcome to the podcast. Uh, so what can you tell us about your new book? Well, right into it. My name is Eric. No, uh, the book is right called in. Stealing Home. It is about the events in L.A. that led to the construction of Dodger Stadium sort of over decades. It is a dramatic and historical true story um, that is less about baseball than you might think and more about like, immigration and civic politics and the tragedy of the American dream gone awry. It's a great topic for our listeners. I mean, the book isn't strictly speaking about Jewish people or Judaism in any way, but it is sort of a story that affects uh, uh, a lot of the Jewish American experience and touches on in that same sort of uh, a lot about the 20th century diaspora and how, you know, marginalized communities can interact with sports in both positive and negative ways. Uh, You know, as we know about that's sort of the, the story of the book, but what can you tell us about yourself that might have led to you telling the story? Sure. Uh, well, I mean, your listeners should know that I'm Jewish. I think that's, that's an important part of why I'm here. Uh, You'd be the first one who wasn't. <laughs> that was implied by the Nussbaum. You never know. Um, <laughs> could be I could have changed my with name two M's. It. It's true. I grew up in L.A. and um, I went to school in Culver City, California, which is like a little city kind of wrapped up inside of L.A. Um, And at Culver City High School, I had this great U.S. history teacher who brought in a guest speaker named Frank Wilkinson. And Frank had been a public housing official in L.A. who was blacklisted in the McCarthy era, 1952 to be precise. And he came in to talk about how his his life, his family's lives, everybody's lives, like the whole thing was messed up for him in the 50s, you know. because of anti-communist fear. Um, but what I didn't realize until that day was that like his whole story was wrapped up in the events that led to Dodger Stadium being built. Um, he had been trying to build this public housing project, which was then 
Knicks to miss this Red Scare conspiracy, and that led to Dodger Stadium being built in that spot. Uh, so I have my childhood, my life, like very directly led me to reading this book because I got this amazing experience as a high school student of hearing from Frank um, and as a young baseball fan, um, I guess as a person who also had kind of heard tales of displacement and like government and forces bigger than you messing up your family's lives in irredeemable ways, um, it really moved me and it stuck with me for literally like 15 years before I published the book. But I thought that was a, a very important part of the story. And, you know, so much in sports, we, we always sort of know the history of the teams. And, uh, you know, if you're a Dodgers fan, you know that there was a Brooklyn Dodgers before there was an LA Dodgers, you know, that the team moved to LA, but we don't always talk about the, you know, the physical space that these teams take up and the impact that that has on the community uh, or, or, you know, a city or, or, or the people who actually live there. Um, and, and that was very fascinating about the book that, you know, that not just that uh, people displaced or, or, or the effect it had, but what else could the space have been, you know, the opportunity cost of building a stadium where, where you build it at the time that you build it uh, and, and what that means to the people, people who are there. Yeah, it's a huge thing. I mean, like the circumstances in this case were so convoluted and insane, like you can't even like replicate them. But, you know, there were communities that lived there that were good, self-sustaining communities that had, you know, lots of history and deep roots and had done nothing to deserve getting kicked out of their homes. And then there was this possibility of a public housing project, which whatever your opinions about public housing, you can see how that is theoretically, you know, a public good. Um, and you go from uprooting these communities to supposedly building public housing to not building public housing to then selling a piece of land to a private businessman from out of town, Walter O'Malley, the owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers, to build a st stadium. And like, obviously, Dodger Stadium is a beautiful building. You know, I, I love it. And it's an important building in LA, maybe the most important building, I would argue. But the cost is not just, you know, limited to that area where Dodger Stadium is. The cost ripples throughout the community uh, and throughout the generations in the community and the trauma of those events ripples forward to today too. This is a huge thing that, that happened in the 50s and, you know, it's in many ways still happening. That, now that you mentioned sort of the, the lasting effect, something I wanted to dig into, one thing I sort of learned from reading the book is that, you know, the people who were rehomed were disproportionately Latino and it sort of put a, a effect on the city. But I don't think it's, a, you know, controversial to say, and I think it's a great thing that the Dodgers have a very, very strongly Latino fan base as well, as a lot of LA does. And I'm curious to, you know, to what degree is a story like this sort of a mainstream part of the Dodger fandom? I wouldn't say it's a mainstream part of the Dodger fandom. It's a thing that some Dodger fans know about. Many Dodger fans have a general idea that maybe something happened. I don't think it's a universally known fact. And then I think when people do understand it, they misunderstand it. I think the story gets compressed in a lot of ways where like, you know, the, the real story in really simple terms is that like do-gooder public housing activists came in, kicked out families to build public housing, and then they were railroaded by real estate interests in the Red Scare, and then the land sat empty, and then the final families were forcibly evicted, and then the Dodgers came and built the stadium. So that's like the <clears throat> very complicated, but short version of the complicated story. The like version that I think many people understand or misunderstand is that the Dodgers came and kicked out 3,000 people. Uh, that didn't happen either. 
many people prefer to just like not think about it at all. It's like, well, that happened a long time ago. I like the Dodgers, which mm -hmm. in, you know, in my opinion is not the way to go about it, but I understand it because like <laughs> it's sports, it's your favorite team. It's baseball. You want to have a beer and a hot dog and just like enjoy yourself. Sure. I mean, none of us really wants to think about all the, you know, the warts and all portrayal of all our teams or, you know, the owners necessarily and how they got their money is not always savory, the most savory stories, how the teams got the space that they're in, uh, you know, how they acquired certain players even sometimes has a, a more uh, unsavory bent to it. But I think it's important to tell the sort of story of uh, uh, the truth behind it so that people can sort of, you know, understand the history of it and, and appreciate the history of that. I mean, especially with baseball, which is the most, you know, the, the longest the longest played professional leagues, the most American sports, there is this sort of constant attempt to rewrite the history that's, uh, that, that doesn't necessarily value the lives of the people who were affected by decisions that were made at the highest levels, you know, over the last 100, 150 years, honestly, when we're talking about baseball. Yeah, I mean, with baseball, it's all wrapped up in like the mythology of the sport and going back to, and I write about this in the book, actually, like get kind of deep into like the weeds of the creation myth of baseball and Abner Doubleday and how baseball's kind of always been bought and sold. Um, not baseball, like a physical baseball or a baseball team, but like the concept of baseball. And that was a big part of why LA really wanted a team because the city kind of leaders had bought into this vision that baseball was this necessary American thing that would kind of lend credibility to the city and make, make LA a real American capital as opposed to just this giant city on the West coast that nobody took seriously. Well, that's a, a really interesting point you bring up. I think the, the myth of baseball has been historically very effective at creating and motivating political will. Um, as you just mentioned, you know, it's something LA felt it needed to do to, to become that alpha city, but you, you, it comes to mind in times, you know, tax breaks for stadiums and, and public dollars that go to sports team uh, funding about how sort of political will when it comes to sports, in a lot of cases, just another example of uh, something that takes over community need. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't just happen in baseball either. Look at football or basketball or hockey. Or, I mean, generally speaking, like sports teams tend to hold cities hostage and win. Um, and absolutely, that's sort of an ongoing tragedy in America. And that's why I think this, this story is important because I, as we grapple, you know, all of us continue to grapple with those issues or, or not us necessarily, but civic officials and county officials in various places deal with these issues. You know, the idea of both eminent domain and uh, expropriation of land and, you know, moving stadiums around, things like that, taking cities hostage continues to be an issue. And, and public funding for sports stadiums continues to be, I mean, it hasn't happened in Canada where we are much in the last uh, little while, but in the state, it's sort of, it's outrageous, the kind of things that are going on. I mean, the, uh, you know, not necessarily public funding, but the the size and scope of the new LA football complex is sort of an example of that, that it's just sort of like, I, 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 I'd be interested to hear your opinion about that because as someone who lives in LA or is from LA, you know, it seems like it's totally changing the area around it. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's, it's massive. Um, I don't really think it was necessary considering there's already, you know, multiple other football stadiums in LA. And it's totally changing the area. You know, people are going to get kicked out of their homes and, you know, storefronts are going to get shuttered and reopened with different businesses. And it's the way things just go. It's not necessarily about like one way this happens. It's about the general sort of pattern of powerful people with money making decisions that 
ultimately impact the way less powerful people with less money live and where and how they live. I think it's tough as a sports fan because you want your team to stay in your city. You want there to be a new stadium. but And you want downtown stadiums as well. Absolutely. But you don't want necessarily public funds going towards these things or people's uh, you know whole neighborhoods being picked up and moved like they did in Brooklyn when they built Barclays um, to, to sort of accommodate these, these stadiums. Um, I, should, I should mention Eric. Uh, Eric recently published a piece on Defector.com about the history of the minor leagues. I really enjoyed that, Eric. I thought that was, uh, you know, also an interesting historic take about, um, you know, the, the way these things developed uh, and also the way the West Coast had a sort of quasi-professional, or sorry, quasi-major league in the, profe- in the um, Pacific Coast League. That's basically, you know, the history is done away with by baseball now because they've reorganized uh, the way the minor league system works. Thank you. Yeah, I published that like three hours ago. I'm impressed how, how on top of it you guys are. Well, I am a, I am a lawyer member subscriber to Defector.com. <laughs> <laughs> lawyer member is higher than mine because mine I can't even comment on my own articles that I wrote. <laughs> I, I, am a, I am a lawyer, but I, I didn't pay the $1,000 to, uh, to, to be a lawyer, lawyer level member. That, that was a little too steep for me. But uh, I think I paid the hundred dollars that allows me to comment. Uh, I, I should upgrade. Uh, but you know, James brings up a great point. This is obviously a very important story to you. What are some of the other things you read about? I like history. I mean, I like stuff that happened a long time ago. Um, I, you know, I read a newsletter every week called Sports Stories. Um, it's illustrated by my friend Adam Villison. So every week we do usually like a profile of a historic athlete, an unsung athlete, or unsung event that happened in sports. Um, comes out every Tuesday. It's at sportsstories.substack.com. If any of them are Jewish, please let us know. You know, we have a Jewish one in the pipe. It hasn't come out yet. I don't know if we've actually published a Jewish athlete. Now I have to think about it. In any case. <laughs> uh, if you want to check, we've become very good at fact-checking uh, who's a Jew and who's not a Jew. Isn't it kind of depressing that like a lot of like the Jewish sports narrative comes down to like, is Jock Peterson really Jewish? Oh, yeah. yes. And the answer is yes, he is. I'm aware of that because of the way that the Jewish sports narrative goes. Something that the head of the Israeli sports authority once said, you know, Israel believes if it was good enough for Hitler, it was good enough for them. Um, And that's how I also feel about which athletes are Jewish. I I, I tend to be like, if you identify as Jewish, you're Jewish. And even if you don't, sometimes we'll identify you you for you. Paul Goldschmidt, for example, total Baptist Christian, but... His, all of his grandparents were Jews. I, we, we've sort of taken a, I, taken I know. a, a I, know. <laughs> I didn't know that about all, all four of Goldsmith's grandparents. Were I Jews? believe wow. so. I think half, I think half Jewish. Have you gotten him on the show? No. no. His Goldschmidt or his grandparents? <laughs> any, any or all of the above. I, I think we've taken the position that our definition is, um, some Jewish lineage is, is the basis point, but if someone rejects it, uh, like the, the golfer Corey Pavin, like he converted to, uh, to evangelical, that it's like, if you convert away, okay, fine. We're not going to still claim you. But I think it's sort of like, until we, until we hear otherwise, if we find out that you're born Jewish, then, then you're Jewish for our purposes. What about if you convert in, like Amari? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Amari is, you know, if, if we ever get a basketball team together, he's, he, he's the head coach. David Beckham, too. He's uh, playing point guard. I didn't know. I feel like you could get Amari on the show. He's, like, he's down to talk about his faith. Oh, yeah. He's big time. Uh, big time. We actually talked to Fred Katz of The Athletic last week. Um, episode went live yesterday. And there's a long chat about Amari's providence. He's, he, Fred would be a better authority on this than I am. <laughs> there, uh, uh, Amari's a great example. I mean, we could talk about this all day and, and who's Jewish and who isn't. But uh, there's a, may, many more people than you would expect. Soccer player Mario Balotelli was adopted by a Jewish family in Italy was raised Jewish, even though he very much is not. 
biologically speaking. If they're Jewish, Steph Curry has a, has a, a shalom tattoo on his arm. You know, <laughs> not Jewish per se, but you know, we'll take that. Um, you know, so so we'll you know we we are a small and growing sect of uh, Jewish athletes and, and Jewish pro athletes, especially. So we got we got to cast a wide net. Do you identify as part of the sect of Jewish pro athletes? No, but uh, as someone who talks about Jewish pro athletes, how about part of the orbit of Jewish part of the pro orbit. athletes? Yeah, That's I have fair. talked to a Jewish pro athlete at least. I was going to say this brings us into our our great question, a uh, great topic, and something that is definitely true of Los Angeles in a lot of ways is that you know Los Angeles and New York tend to have uh, interesting sort of uh, cultural and immigrant and diasporic relationships to their sports teams. And, you know, we sort of got to this earlier talking about the Dodgers and and sort of the history of displacement they had in a, a majority Latino community that was solidly middle class, as you mentioned. Um, it's interesting to know sort of how, how do you feel about, you know, how teams, uh, I would say groups or fans can sort of have that relationship that is part of your cultural identity as well as well as your local identity. So I guess being part of a, being a Jewish Dodger fan is liking Sandy Koufax. Um, I, I think that's Definitely. where we're going in this conversation. Uh, he is universally liked, though. I think he's transcended uh, just our, our small our small two percent of the population. Uh, but yeah, like being you know. I don't know, growing up as a Dodger fan in L.A., like my dad also grew up in L.A. as a Dodger fan. Uh, and like he would tell me that like the time he saw Sandy Koufax at Yom Kippur was like the coolest thing ever to happen to him. That does uh, sound pretty cool. It's, it's a, like maybe not the coolest thing, but, you know, it was it was memorable. It's a part of it. Like it's being a sports fan is a tribal thing. You know, like for me, I would say that like my relationship to the Dodgers is not that different from my attachment to Judaism in that a lot of it is wrapped up in people I care about and my, you know, relationships. And it involves a lot of like heartache and deep scholarly examination of my values. Although ultimately I spend much more time thinking about those things in the context of the Dodgers than I do in my religion, if we're going to be honest. I spend a lot more time at baseball games than at Temple too. That's a really common answer. Um, and, and, I mean, what do you think it is about the American experience that turns sports into a, a religion? Well, I think this part, I mean, part of it is the tribal aspect. Like, it's really like something that we do together. You know, you sit up together, you sit down together, you yell and sing together. Like, there's actual physical similarities to the experience of, you know, being in services or being at shul or whatever it is, or being at church and being at a game. I had um, never thought of the standing up and sitting down together. That's a good point. There's literally like a, like a, scoreboard telling you please rise and yeah you know, whatever like take Except the ball game is like is like yeah, the, is like it, the, the you know kaddish of the baseball game or whatever please rise for jock uh, peterson and then the amida exactly there's a lot there's just a lot similar to it you know it's it's also regional and like you know religion is very much like you separate yourself into a group and cities do that too like i have la pride and west coast pride and like i'm gonna get caught up in some petty bullshit with new york people absolutely i will and I <laughs> hope that they will too. Like that's kind of it's human nature. I think I'm not. I'm not sure. I think it is too. Where Where do you live now? I live in Tacoma, Washington now. Tacoma, Washington. Yes, sir. Uh, beautiful place. It is. I've been I once. Love it. I've been here like a little over a year. Are there any local sports teams you're following now in Tacoma? Well, I was very excited to get into Tacoma Rainiers baseball, uh, uh -huh. AAA team, which thankfully still exists. 
Um, that's the Mariners AAA team. That's the Mariners AAA team. But we have not been able to go to a game since we moved here because of the pandemic. We don't need to take up any more of your time, Eric. Thank you very much. This was great. Uh, Stealing Home is available anywhere you buy books, presumably. Anywhere you buy books, yeah. Go to your local bookstore if you can. Listeners, you can read Eric's work on at Defector.com. We'll post a link on our Twitter page to the recent article you wrote about minor league baseball. Informative for everybody about the reorganization going on there. Um, Eric, anything else uh, you want to plug before we take off? Uh, book's coming out in paperback in March, March 16th. Check it out. Uh, check out Sports Stories newsletter, uh, sportsstories.substack.com. And thank you so much for listening. It would make for great Passover reading. It, w- it Honestly, Stealing Home would too. There's an actual exodus involved in the book. So like, you'll, you'll find that out if, if you buy it. There's the tie-in right there. <laughs> well, thanks again, Eric. And uh, uh, let's be in touch. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Eric. Uh, that was a great interview. Great chat with Eric. It was great to have him. He's welcome back anytime on our little program, uh, especially if he is here to talk about Los Angeles sports uh, or if he can find any Jewish players that are playing in his new hometown of Tacoma on that minor league baseball team he is excited to follow. Uh, we would love if he wants to uh, uh, correspond for us. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> nice being an L.A. fan right now. I mean, two champions, you know, the Lakers and the Dodgers in one year. I mean, we, we, we've, all we've had is the Raptors win, which I'm not complaining about. It was pretty great, but. Do you think that's, do you think that's what killed Larry King? Oof. No, the I Dodgers, think he, uh, you think he just was so excited about it? He's like, now I can go? Yeah, the Dodgers finally won. And the, then the Lakers won and, you know, he was sitting, he sort of was always sitting there in that like weird hunched position with the two hands up, like, like a, a guy watching a movie theater in the first row. And now, you know, the Dodgers won and he went, all right, that's enough. Could be. It could have been the fact that he was like 90 something, you know, yeah, there's but, just a, there's and, a time. You know, the season. global pandemic will come for us all, but yeah, thankfully <laughs> it came for him, you know, after he, after the Mookie Betts trade. I hope I live long enough to watch to see the Blue Jays win a World Series. I, I'm sure I, I will. I think I'm, so, I'm sure too. they'll win. I, I'm sure they will. Will eventually. Time. That's but like I, some bucket list stuff. I, I actually wanted to ask you a question, regardless of the 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 Dodgers, regardless of sports. Let's go for a non sports division. Do you have a favorite Jew? Ooh, do I have a favorite Jew? Aside from like my own personal uh, family, yeah, outside your like outside your immediate orbit, let's say. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, in terms of like people I admire or influence me, I'd say like Mordecai Richler is my favorite writer. He's one of my favorite Jews. Yeah. Do you have a favorite Jew? Uh, I, I'm a big Lee Schreiber guy. Ooh, cool. I don't know if he's my favorite Jew, but he's cool. Exactly. Yeah, he's cool. He's cool. He's like he's a he's a pretty kick ass Jew. Yeah, exactly. Know? Like he's one of those guys that like an anti Semite would be like, oh, like he's Jewish. Damn. Like yeah, you know, he's one true. everyone wants. Right. But the reason I ask is we've actually got a new sister podcast. Ooh. During which uh, comedian Laura Loeb, if I got that correctly, Laura Labo, as my uh, Laura Lebo, as my producer is telling me, Laura Lebo, as my producer is telling me, even uh, even fuller. Um, <laughs> oh man, co- brings Great. on yeah, brings on who I believe to be non-Jewish people to ask who their favorite Jew is. It is a comedy podcast uh, where hopefully they pronounce the names correctly, as well as discuss why they like Jews and who are their favorites. But I'm, I'm that's great. Yeah. I'm surprised it's non-Jews. I'm not one to talk ill of. I love the CJN. Yeah. It's a bit, it's it's a bit odd. I mean, it's like if I went on a podcast and someone's like, Jamie, who's your favorite Korean person? 
And yeah, I explained like, who is your favorite Korean person? I, I don't know. I guess David Chang. I listen to his podcast sometimes. Yeah, he's a pretty. I, I enjoy his his food. Relatively his notable. He's he made yeah. some very very good food. I don't know. Uh, I, I I don't know if uh, I, it's probably actually maybe Huinjin uh, Ryu actually. Yeah, but uh, he's the hefty lefty. Anyways, the hefty lefty. Yeah, he's great. You can find uh, these are f- a few of my favorite Jews at uh, the CJN.ca or wherever you get your podcasts. At least until the estates of uh, Rogers and Hammerstein come and sue our fledgling organization into the ground. Uh, and, you know, the first episode is up. Speaking of hefty lefties, it is about Jack Black. Uh, oh, will... That makes sense. That's someone who could be someone's favorite Jew. I, I think he's a lot of people's favorite Jew. I think he's another one of those those Jewish people who, like, you know, you don't expect him to be Jewish. But once you find out, right. the pieces sort of start happy to, to fit. Happy to have him. Yeah, happy to have him. Exactly. Welcome. Absolutely. Like uh, Proud like, Jew, Jack Black. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, uh, as Adam Sandler, when Tom Arnold converted to Judaism, he's one of those, oh, yeah, hell yeah, Tom Arnold. Come on. He's, in, he's invited to the Seder. Yeah, invited to the Seder. Anyways, let's let's leave it there for now. Um, we'll be back in a few weeks to talk about baseball. Another great interview with uh, interesting writers and, and Jewish sports people coming up soon. Um, you can follow us on, on Twitter at, Mench, at the Menchwarmers. Um, you can follow us on Facebook at the CJN Lounge or the CJN Podcast Network. Love to hear from you guys. Love love the feedback and all that. Absolutely. And uh, we'll we'll see you guys again soon. Happy Purim. Happy Purim, everyone. <laughs>